Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Imagine wandering through a priceless collection of artwork, Greek sculptures, ancient Egyptian artifacts, primitive pottery, and of course, some of the most famous paintings by masters throughout human history. Monet, Degas, Rothko, and Pollock. Now imagine you are the steward for their future preservation. For my guest today, that's just another day at the office. Daniel Weiss has been president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art since 2015. He has navigated the Met through a series of challenges, including a budget deficit, the COVID crisis, and the removal of the controversial Sackler name from the building. Prior to running the Met, Weiss had his feet firmly planted in academia, he was dean of the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins University and served as president of both Lafayette and Haverford Colleges. He has also published several books on art history. The Met is the largest museum in North America. For an internationally renowned institution of such stature, I was curious what percentage of the Met's visitors are native to the United States. We actually do a lot of tracking of visitors. And let's use numbers prior to COVID when there was a more representative international audience. About a third of our visitors, and prior to COVID, we had about 7 million people come through our doors every year, making us one of the busiest art museums in the world. About a third of them came from all over the world. And the other two-thirds, would one might think of it as thirds, one-third from New York and the New York metropolitan area, the next third from the rest of the country, and then the world. Right. And so really nice balance. And lots of different countries represented. Because I was always curious about that. In other words, one assumes that the Met is on an equal footing in the world of the museums with those other museums. But I always wonder if they occupy a different space because they're in Europe 
and the history that's there and the way, you know, Fran Leibowitz's old line about New York, whenever they tear down a building, they always put up an uglier building. <laughs> and uh, New York sometimes seems to have its cultural priorities fixed in the right place, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, it's an interesting point. If we think about the competitive landscape for museums, the busiest art museum, the most well-attended in the world is the Louvre. And at that time, they would see about 9 million visitors a year. And that's because everybody who's anywhere near Paris is going to go make a visit to the Louvre. New York is a cultural center in, I think, a slightly different way, maybe more like London. People come here for theater. They come for museums. They come for shopping and restaurants. And within that framework, the Met is the largest tourist attraction in New York City indoor tourist attraction. So many people who would come for any number of reasons would make a pilgrimage to the Met, which is why our numbers are so large. So in many ways, we're like London or Paris with regard to visitors. Now, you have mentioned in material that I read that you were breaking records prior to COVID, that the museum was doing fantastically well right before the floor fell out. Yes, we What were. was that like for you to have achieved? To have, You were winning the World Series, then all of a sudden you break your leg. What was that like? It was very discouraging. Exactly right. We had, uh, over the last probably decade, we had been working to build increasingly diverse programming to bring in larger audiences, to reconnect with people who might not come to the museum regularly. So our numbers were climbing in remarkably good ways because we were connecting with larger audiences. And then with the advent of COVID, of course, we went from having terrific audiences to being closed. And we, like the rest of us, everyone, we just closed. And overnight, the museum was shut to the public entirely. We, when we made the decision to close, it was a very, obviously, a big deal. We were the first cultural institution in, in New York City to do it. And by the end of the day, they all had closed, including Broadway. And I thought, when we made the decision, this was a momentous one. And we're probably going to be closed for, I don't know, maybe three weeks. Because how long does it take COVID to run through people and we're done? What did I know? What did any of us know? We were closed for five and a half months. And prior to that, the record was maybe two days, three days. So it was a remarkable experience to be closed entirely for almost half a year. An organization like this, you have a very, very substantial endowment. We do. And when you reach that COVID period, or do you start to have to drain down, obviously, that endowment to pay the bills? Well, we wanted to exercise discipline not to diminish resources that really we are holding in part in stewardship for the future. So we made an emergency financial plan. Once we closed, we wanted to, and we did, keep all of our staff on payroll throughout the period of our closure. And that meant that we had a lot of cost and not a lot of revenue. Forty percent of our operating expenses are covered by our endowment. So we were luckier than most places who didn't have that kind of savings account to draw on. And I'm talking about just the proceeds each year, the return on endowment. So we weren't spending principal, we were spending the proceeds. And we, had, we actually restructured our organization very quickly to try to cut costs in order not to drain the endowment. And we didn't. We never touched any principal in the endowment to get through. It wasn't easy, but it was, we thought, important. Is there a percentage? I'm assuming there's some percentage of the staff of the museum. There are people with disparate tasks and so forth. Are they union? Yes. We have about, prior to COVID, about 2,000 staff. We now have about 1,700. But at, prior to COVID, at the time COVID arrived... And of that, about 40% were union, and the rest were non-union. But as you can imagine, the Met is a place with hundreds of different jobs, and half of them had to be fulfilled even if we were closed. The collections have to still be taken care of. The building still has to be guarded. We have to do all of those things. 
So we had hundreds and hundreds of people coming to the museum every day when the museum was entirely closed. But everybody was on payroll throughout that period. I'm wondering, like other people I know who are hired, who have intense creative backgrounds. Anne Chasson, who's the executive director of the Hamptons Film Festival, is a very good example of someone who arrived on the job and was one of the only, I think, if not the only person to serve as as exec director who had actually been a filmmaker. She was a film producer prior to that. Everybody else had been in, in administration only. And she arrived and she accomplished what her predecessors couldn't, which is she balanced the books. <laughs> she pulled the sword out of the stone in terms of the finances of the, of the festival. And you could tell that it was uh, something that was a, a tremendous accomplishment for her. When you arrived, you didn't think that you were going to be too heavily involved in accounting work. That's and then you then succeeded. Describe what you found and what path that set you on career-wise. Yeah. So when I got to the Met, my background is I'm an art historian by training. I spent most of my career doing scholarship and teaching and then as a college president. But this was my first museum job. It happens I have an MBA and I had a business career early on. So I know both of those worlds and I've spent my career doing both. But when I arrived at the Met, I won't say that I anticipated it would be a sinecure, that I would expect it was going to be easy. But I thought things were stable financially. The place is big and wealthy and everything seems to work well. And there was a very modest deficit that I could discern on the financial statements. But I also had a hard time figuring out what was in the financial statements, which was a warning sign to me. They should be easier to read. And I knew how to read them, but I couldn't. So as we dug into it fairly quickly, it became clear to me that there was a much bigger problem. And the Met actually had very substantial deficits that had been accruing over the last few years. Did someone expose that to you, or you found it yourself, or both? Mostly I found it by asking the right questions of financial people. I can't understand this number. Where does it come from, and how does it relate to this number? And as the answer started to come to me, it was clear there was a more complicated story that adjustments in financial statements had been made in the ways they were presented in order to solve problems in the near term, balance little ex- like you, you spend too much on your credit card, and before you know it, you've got too much. Your balance is really big, so what do you do? You get another credit card and shift the balances. It was like that. And I became very uncomfortable. I think what we really needed to do was take apart the big problem and figure out what the magnitude was. And it was very substantial. So I ended up spending many, much of my first couple of years at the Met not being an art guy, but being a numbers guy, because that was the problem on the ground. And did you find that solving that problem, the Rubik's Cube, if you will, of the finances of the Met, like other people I know, did you become addicted to that? Did you be, were you like, God, this is really, <laughs> because if you don't solve with the institutions, this is my opinion and my experience from other boards I've been on, that you need to solve that problem first, everything. You, you don't have the money for programming if you don't have your books right. You're exactly right. Institutions like the Met, universities, theaters, if they don't have strong, stable finances, it's very hard to do difficult work and take chances and make investments in ideas that are a little bit speculative because any failure is going to cripple the organization. So at the Met, just as you say, we got caught up in figuring out how to solve that problem because the Met deserved to have strong and stable finances. And by the way, we were a pretty rich place. So it's it would have been a harder job to be doing this at a place that didn't have an endowment like we do. So when the art history guy has to go and dig into the, get into the coal mine of finances there, 
does the art history guy have to find another guy to cover the artistic side, to cover his back? Did you have to hire people to do a job that you ordinarily would have been doing? Well, the way the Met's structured, a little bit like a university, my job as the president was to oversee the operations of the institution. And there was a director who's a little bit like in a university, the provost who oversees all the academic stuff. So we have and had a director who oversaw the exhibitions, the collection. Who was that? At the time I arrived, it was Tom Campbell. Right. When he left, we brought in a new director. And, and so I never had to worry for, I was doing both jobs for about a year and a half. And to your point, I did have to get help. I could not do all right. those things. So I relied on some of the staff that was already there, the administrative staff, to take on a larger role. And they stepped right up and it was great. But I was still focused primarily, as you say, on the finances, because if you don't get that right, then you really can't, you can't tell people their employment is secure. You can't tell them we can fund that exhibition. We can't buy that work of art. Everything shuts down if you don't have stable operating finance. The person that's there now is Max, how do you pronounce the name? Holine. He's been there now for about four and a half years. You've written seven books, and people asked about Sackler, and the Sackler DNA is in a lot of institutions in this country and around the world, and they, of course, had their problems. And I'm wondering, is that something that is in your field and in any field that's that's having to raise massive amounts of money, I mean, millions upon millions and eventually billions of dollars accrue in your in your reserves. The Sacklers, it's an obvious one. They wind up having this horrible litigation problems and public relations debacle. But are there other people who, it's, it's not in the paper, are you like on guard constantly vetting sources of money and having to deal with people? Is there a constant managing of people, what they want to attach to their gifts? Yeah, I think there's two issues here that are both interesting to think about. One is, are there individuals who their connection to their money is such that we might not want to accept a gift because they have questionable background or they're involved in things. And you've seen that? We have. Beyond Sackler? Yes. In fact, I'll speak openly about this. The Saudi government approached us about a partnership right after Khashoggi was killed. We were not interested in partnering with the leadership of the Saudi government at that time because we didn't feel that it was a proper association for us. There wasn't all of the evidence at the time available to determine who was really responsible But the response of the Saudi government was not forthcoming enough to give us satisfaction that we should invest the integrity of our brand in that partnership. We didn't work with them. I would say this with regard to the issue of who we work with. The primary goal for us is to fund our mission, and it is almost entirely funded philanthropically. So if we don't collect the resources, we can't do the work. And therefore, our job is not to vet donors so much as to advance our mission. But there are people who cross the line. And we have over the years been approached by people that we think they're not really appropriate for us to be working with because of the way they raise the money or their stature or positions in the world. But I do that on an exceptional basis because my job is not to determine who's met worthy as a club member, but how do we fund the mission? And so there are times we won't do it. The other issue, which you raise quite rightly, is... How do you deal with donors who have ideas? And there's two kinds that are problematic, where they say, I I know what you're doing at the Met, that's all great, but I don't want to do that. I want you to do this and this, and I have an idea for a different kind of a thing. And you have to have enough strength and integrity as an institution to say, Alec, thanks so much for your offer of $100 It's great, but we're not going to do that. We're not interested in that. We have a strategic plan. These are the things we'd love to do. And if you want to help us with those, 
we'd really be delighted. But we're not going to build a new art museum in St. Louis right now just because you think that would be great. And that happens. And then sometimes people say they want their name to be represented in ways that is challenging. For example, there's a long history in New York, people making capital gifts that are in perpetuity. So Alec Baldwin's name is going to be on that wing. Forever. Forever. But 100 years from now, you ain't around and I ain't around and who's going to pay to fix it? And I'm pretty sure the average person on the street might want to not pay to have that name live forever. So there needs to be fiscal responsibility about the long term. If the institution's supposed to last forever, who's going to carry that obligation long after you're not able to? In the way that they had to buy out the Fisher family. Exactly. For Geffen. They had to pay the Fisher family an amount of money to reverse the perpetuity gift. Exactly right. That's a perfect example. And that was a thoughtful way to solve that problem. But each time – so we don't really do perpetuity gifts anymore because – you know, 50 years, 100 years, how about that? Is that going to be okay? Your grandchildren will have a chance to see it, and after that, all bets are off. And most donors appreciate that, but some don't. Some are more interested in some other way to make sure their their name lasts longer than that. But our job is to be really thoughtful about the well-being of the institution long after we're gone. So there are all kinds of issues associated with dealing with donors that are interesting. They're usually positive, even if they're challenges to work through. Most people They lay out their agenda and you solve it with them. And it's entirely positive. One thing that occurred to me is that all the art that hangs on the walls, all of it that occupies a space in your facility and in your counterparts, the artists are dead. And at the Museum of Modern Art, they're not all dead. (laughs) And there seems to be a sense in my mind, especially living in New York, that there is a world of people who are working awfully hard to expand and augment their status in the art world to get their art to hang on that wall. There's a drama there, if you will, I find that kind of interesting. What do you think are the things that people have to deal with at MoMA that you're happy you don't have to deal with? Yeah, so MoMA's job is to be far more leading edge and engaged in the contemporary art world than ours is. So they're willing to, quite appropriately, take risks. They may do an exhibition of an artist that may not actually prove to be of longstanding importance in the world of the history of art. We think of ourselves, and this isn't at all in a pedantic way, but as a, we're the canon. So if something comes into the Met, it's arrived in a way that is, in a sense, establishing the place of that artist in history. That's at least how we think about ourselves, and a lot of people think about us. So there's no question that living artists like Jasper Johns or David Hockney belong in the Met, and they are in the Met. And there are other living artists where it's not clear yet whether or not— Time will tell. Yeah, exactly. But that said, we actually do a fair amount of contemporary art nowadays, more than we used to. And we don't compete directly with MoMA. They have an extraordinary program that leads the world. But ours is excellent, too. And— We just are, I think, a little bit more focused on the long-term importance of that artist because that's sort of what we do. And because our collections are so diverse across time and history, we look for artists that connect in new ways to the other art we have in our place. So we might have a contemporary artist come who actually is basing their work on traditions in our Egyptian department or other areas because then we can show those connections in different ways. Daniel Weiss. If you enjoy conversations about world-famous works of art, check out my episode with Eric Shiner, former director of the Andy Warhol Museum. The dollar sign paintings. 
$201 bills was his very Which first silkscreen painting. Which sold for $43 million. Dollars. Exactly. So that's an early 1960s work, 1962. So he was being uh, dismissed for that. He was. And, um, you know, a lot of people said that it was too tacky to paint money. It was too gauche. And <laughs> when we look at those paintings today, what's more indicative of the early 1980s <laughs> in New York than the almighty dollar? He hit it square please. on the head. To hear more of my conversation with Eric Shiner, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Daniel Weiss shares why he made the jump from academia to running one of the largest art institutions in the world. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In addition to being president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Daniel Weiss is also the author of several books on art history, including France and the Holy Land, and Art and Crusade in the Age of Saint-Louis. Yet one of Weiss's books stands out from the others. It's entitled, In That Time, Michael O'Donnell and the Tragic Era of Vietnam. I wanted to know how he came to write a book so divergent from the rest of his catalog. It came about probably about 15 years ago. I came across a book by Harold Evans, the great publisher, he had produced a book called The American Century, which is really a beautiful book on the political history of America in the 20th century. And in that book, there was a small section on the Vietnam War. Within that section, there was a photograph of this very nice-looking young man, and below it, a poem he had written while he was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And I was so moved by that poem, the last stanza of which says, And in that time, when men decide and feel safe to call this war insane— don't forget those gentle heroes you left behind. And right after he wrote it, he was shot down while rescuing other soldiers in Vietnam in March of 1970. When I read 
Evans's book, it said he's still missing in action. This was in the 90s. I got interested in just learning more about who this guy was, why he wrote that poem, and somehow I felt like he was calling upon us to pay attention to what happened to these guys. I'm young enough to have not been drafted, but I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam War really well. I was in high school. It was on TV every day. Neighbors of ours went to war. Yes, exactly. We all know people who did of our generation. And so as I learned more about this guy, I discovered a story that was extraordinarily powerful. And the book I ended up writing is about the life of one innocent American kid, but it's placed within the context of what happened to our country. So I trace what happened to Michael O'Donnell as I'm describing what Lyndon Johnson is doing or Richard Nixon is doing and how their decisions affected him on the ground. And then I talk about his poetry, which was very powerful. And he was missing in action for 28 years. And during that period, he was dead. His family didn't know that. And for 28 years, about three times a year, they got a letter from the army saying, we're writing to update you on the status of your son. A Caucasian male was noticed on the streets of Saigon resembling your son. They were doing this meticulous job of accounting for the whereabouts of their son. It was excruciating for them because, in fact, they sort of believed he was dead. So I chronicle in the book what it means to be missing in action to the people who are left around. And then there's a chapter in the book, they actually found the remains in Cambodia. And I write about how do you find the remains of soldiers that were killed 30 years ago in a tropical jungle in a helicopter went down in flames. And we're talking about tooth fragments and bone fragments embedded in the ground. How did they find them? Some Cambodian farmers who knew that landscape, this was 30 miles away from a teeny little town in the middle of nowhere. And the American government spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year looking for and restituting the remains of American soldiers around the world. So a Cambodian farmer said, I saw remains, looks like a helicopter. And he told them where he actually led this team in on a raft, and they had to float down the river for days on this raft to get into the jungle to find this helicopter. When they did, the American team mobilized, they cleared a landing zone, they brought in helicopters, and they set up an excavation team. So the rusty hull of the helicopter was there as a marker. And there are pictures in the book of what that helicopter looked like. But if you were 30 feet away from it, you wouldn't see it. And so it's a miracle that it was found. And I wanted to give some color to the story of how do you find these people? And then Michael was buried with full honors at Arlington Cemetery two weeks before 9-11. So the arc of the book is about one mistake, which we would call Vietnam, and how for this family, that story endured for 30 years, right up until 9-11. And then we embarked on a whole new chapter of policies that were controversial and questionable and led to the result of dead Americans for not necessarily a good reason in Afghanistan and Iraq. War is a terrible thing, but it also generates incredible stories that we are drawn to, that we're curious about, that mean something to us. Well, I mean, obviously, there was a deep emotional connection you had to this story. Only one such book in your quiver? Or did you, were there other books you wanted to write that were not about your profession? No, there are. I've, for whatever reason, I have always been drawn to stories like that one, about people who have done something larger than themselves. I wrote a a series of articles about a young woman who was the first civilian publicly executed in the Soviet Union in the Second World War. And her identity was not known until I published her identity in 1990s. I was drawn to that story. Remarkable. We have photographs of this event, and she was a great heroine. 
And so I'm drawn to these stories that I'm, that I think are, are related to what it means to be human and understanding the nature of sacrifice and people you know, at their best. People at their best. People exactly. at their best. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no greater story than that. Now, in your career, which prior to coming to run the Met, it was pretty much exclusively academia. And uh, you were at uh, Lafayette for eight years, and then you went to Haverford. And you're at Haverford for two years. Did you just have enough of academia at that point? What was the, in the godfather parlance, what was the offer they made you that you couldn't refuse, that you exited academia? Yeah, well, I did have a brief business career. I, I went to business school, and I was a management consultant in New York for four years before I went to do art history. So I always had a little bit of both. Haverford's a great place, as you know, and I, I really enjoyed being there. It has a very special community and intellectual culture that I loved, and uh, I was very happy there. But I got a call about coming to the Met, which is a singular institution in the world. And without speaking about my own qualifications compared to others, I have a rather unique background because I have the business background as well as a very deep art history background. And that's what the museum was looking for for the reasons that we've discussed. So I felt drawn to that opportunity and the role. And the leadership at Haverford understood that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and there was a need at the Met for a new kind of leadership. So I felt compelled to do that. What kind of leadership? To combine a serious commitment to scholarly work and fiscal discipline. Got it. Right. To fix the budgets. But at the same time, as, as you know, generating scholarship like creative work is really inefficient. It, it's expensive. You make mistakes. There are failures. And if you become too fiscally focused, then you don't waste time on, on scholarly projects that might take a long time. And that would have been a mistake. So what I brought was the ability to understand the value of both of those things. And I, was, I felt called to do that. So I, I was so sorry to leave Haverford. It was a great place. Great school. And I still have close relations there. But it was the right moment for me to make that change. Now, some of the institutions I've worked with over the years where I've served on the boards, I was developing my sensibilities about this stuff, and I realized I was somewhat uncomfortable with people that were raising huge amounts of money for rent for a building. And eventually I said to myself, I don't know how I feel that you're handing this guy who's the landlord $350,000 a year in rent, and I wound up leaving that institution and leaving that board to go join another one where they own the building. There was always friction, and there was always resistance to asking for money, but they didn't even blink at spending all this money on renovating the building. Do you find that in terms of as a percentage of the money that's available to you, that you are constantly struggling to get the money you need for programming and research and so forth? Well, you're raising, by the way, I think exactly the right issue for all cultural institutions, because programming is why we're here, and it is connecting people to the ideas that are behind the program. But all of us want to have better facilities, bigger facilities, nicer dressing rooms, better more galleries. More bathrooms. More bathrooms, <laughs> all of that. And you can lose your way. You can become, and there's certainly ego involved. If during my tenure as president, we build this great wing, I'll, you know, my grandchildren will see that and know I built it. Finding the balance is the key. And You and I talked last night about the risk of creeping commercialism in culture and in the arts. When you walk in an art museum, you want to have a pure experience with the objects, and you don't need to see brought to you by Nobody Beats the Whiz or whatever. Right. You want to just see the objects. The greatest challenge in being leaders in this sector is finding a way for that stuff to be invisible. The programming is being presented. The institution looks good. The facilities are right. They're properly funded. And sometimes that means saying no 
to big projects that eat resources, even though they may look great. But what are you doing to successive generations when those people have to take care of it and they don't have enough money to put on the programming they need to? There, you need a strong board. As you were as a trustee in that organization, you need to ask those questions and hold people accountable. Why are you doing that? Do you really need that? What happens to the resources for the program? And if you don't ask those questions, then bad things can happen. So in my experience, that's exactly how shared governance should work. Everybody with a vested interest in the well-being of the place should ask the hard questions, and then you do the things you can afford. Daniel Weiss. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Daniel Weiss weighs in on the actions of climate activists who intentionally deface priceless works of art in an attempt to draw attention to their cause. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Daniel Weiss has a master's and PhD in medieval and modern art and has been a professor of art history at Johns Hopkins University and Lafayette College. I wanted to know how he was first drawn to this career. I grew up on Long Island. I was not interested in art. art. I didn't know anything about it. What did your dad do? My father was a businessman. 
And he actually had been an artist, a little, an amateur artist. And I, I, he had his own stuff on the walls, which I liked, but I knew nothing about art. I don't, had never been to an art to museum. To art on the walls of your home. Yeah, just a little, and it was his, right. and that was it. That's fine. It was nice, but I didn't, there was no real artistic family. Who did he paint in the style of your father? Impressionists. He got divorced from my mother, and he was a bachelor for a while, and he painted and decorated his walls with stuff he had painted. And so I remember visiting him as a kid. He lived in these exotic places like Puerto Rico and Brazil. And it was a great time for me. I was with him, and, I, and those, those pictures were on the wall. So I had a positive association with art, but I had no real interest in it. And then I went to George Washington University, and I was studying political science, which lasted for me for maybe six weeks, and I realized that's not for me. And I wasn't sure what to do, and I was interested. I met this young woman who was a student there, and I wanted to get to know her, and she told me she was taking this art history class, and I needed a fifth class. So I took this class, and it was a revelatory experience for me. The professor was this young, charismatic, brilliant guy who was talking about something that interested me immediately. I was not a very serious student up until that moment. I was trundling along in college, just sort of hanging out. And this subject was really interesting to me, and the way he brought it to life, he knew how to perform teaching in a way that was compelling. Every sentence came together, his paragraphs were complete, his intellectual presentation was accessible but inspiring, and I wanted to know more. And to make a long story short, I took one class after another with him, and I became a serious student. By the last end of college, I was a serious academic, and I ended up pursuing that study. He's still a very dear friend, and I actually married that woman. It all worked out very well for me, but that was a life day. I walked into this class. I found myself as a serious person, and my relationship with Sandra began to grow, and I've felt lucky for the rest of my life that every day I have this passion about something that's larger than me that matters to me. And prior to that day, I didn't have that. I was just a kid in the world. And I think having a passion for something that animates you, engages you, brings out your best effort, gives you the motivation to do hard things in order to be an art historian. I had to learn a lot of languages. I wasn't even a good language student, but I did. You were from Long Island, so you barely spoke English. <laughs> I spoke Long Island, right, you spoke which Long you and I can speak yes, off the I, record. I, I speak it well. I know you do. Right. That's, it's very true. So I feel very lucky about all of that. And as I say, I've never looked back. It's been a, a good ride. So obviously in the headlines lately, people throwing soup and so forth at these paintings, we find out that the uh, artwork is protected. It's got some veneer over it to protect the actual artwork itself. But that's probably true of every piece of art of any real value around the world for that very reason, that in case. Right. This issue of people decolonize this place, DCT, Just Stop Oil, these different people that are doing this. What do you think about this phenomenon? Well, I think it's very misplaced effort to try to mobilize change around a real problem. Most thoughtful people would acknowledge that climate change is a disaster and that we have an obligation to do more than we do. I agree with that. But I don't think it helps their case to vandalize works of art that are priceless and celebrated, treasured by all of humanity. That, that just alienates people. And by the way, it isn't harmless. It's like saying, I'm going to shoot at the president's car and he's got an armored car and nobody's going to get hurt and that's no problem. It actually is a problem. It, it, first of all, it demonstrates that vandalizing works of art is a practice that can be used, can be mobilized for reasonable 
rationale, which I think is a, not a good idea. It inspires it, people. It, that's the word. It inspires people, and it undermines the quality of the experience for everybody in a museum, knowing that at any moment that these objects are going to be desecrated or might be. And so I think in the end, it doesn't generate the goodwill they're hoping to. It generates visibility in the way terrorist acts often do, and it doesn't win friends. And then finally, even throwing ink or soup on a covered work of art is not neutral to the work of art. It actually seeps behind the glass. It damages the frame. Some of those frames are worth millions of dollars. Yes. And so it's it's utterly irresponsible. You don't put glass over the frame. No, you can't do that, and they're damaged. So I, I think anything that undermines the quality of the experience people have is a bad thing. I remember when I was in college at George Washington in the in the late 1970s, you could walk right into the Capitol, walk right in. You could go into the Senate reception chamber and, and invite a senator to come out and meet them. You could walk right around the White House. You could drive past it. None of those things are possible anymore because we live in a fortified universe because of the incremental damage that terrorism has done. I don't wish to see the museum become another front line in that. One of your pattern. counterparts in the article I read in the Times said, "Well, the the real answer is to shut the museum if you want to protect the artwork. If you want to guarantee that we can protect the artwork, the only way to do that is to shut the museum, which we have no intention of doing." Yes, exactly. That we is can't. the only way to do it. To be sure, we I mean, take risks every day. One thing that I thought about, and again, I'm blue skying here, so I hope you don't think I'm insane, and that is that the Met invite these people to come and have a forum. You invite the yeah. protesters that are throwing the paint and say, why don't you come on into the museum with us and we will live stream a forum with you and you tell us exactly what your goals are and how you believe you achieve your goals this way and have them come and see if they make any sense or if they don't make any sense, and we're going to live stream this, I want you to know that I'm volunteering to moderate this program for you. I will be your moderator, free of charge. That's great. It's a wonderful idea, and it, it's disarmingly candid to engage them in that way. I think the idea of taking them seriously around the issues they're concerned with while helping them to understand that what they're doing is very dangerous to the objects. So let's talk in a substantive way rather than just a Take quick Take them seriously. Bite. Yes. So three of them and three of you, and you're going to sit there and say, well, here's why we think there's perhaps other options you should be examining. Yep, and let them make the case for why it is this is a good venue for them to make a complicated case about climate change. I think it's a great idea, and I'll take you up on your offer. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's very interesting. We'll, we'll, uh, let's keep talking about it. What art hangs on the wall of your home? So I'm not a serious collector, but my wife and I have have acquired things that are meaningful to us. And perhaps the most meaningful things are those paintings my father did as a young man that he gave to me, and he has since died. And they remind me not only of him in a really special time in my life, but really my first engagement with art. And I still love them. I see a lot of great art, but I still think what he produced at that time... Who's he similar to? His art is similar to what impressionists? It's it's sort of like maybe Cecily or uh, any of the... He did city scenes that look like Alfred Cecily, maybe, or Monet. And he wasn't, as I say, a great artist, but he had a distinctive style that connects with me. And in my home, that's what... Uh, I have a lot of other things, but those are the things. If, I, if the house was on fire, they're the ones I'd run out with. That's amazing. In the world where people are being sued, there are government policies exhorting nations to return artwork to what is 
perceived as their rightful place. What's that been like for you in your work at the Met? Well, there have always been legal issues that we deal with when a legal claim is made for a work of art in our collection. We're always happy to honor the law. And if it means, for example, Holocaust claims, Holocaust-era losses of art that we didn't know about, and they, they're hanging on our walls, and a family member comes forward and said, that was my grandfather's. In the event there is evidence to prove that, we're abs- we do it all the time. We give them back. So the law must always be followed. But the increasing story in the news is the ethical issues around works of art that it's pretty clear belong somewhere else, but they're in museums, in the Met or the British Museum or the Louvre or anywhere. And we're all trying to figure out how best do we preserve our fiduciary responsibility to our institution. We're supposed to be preserving the objects in our care, but also serving the world in a more effective way and being ethical about that. And there are all kinds of new creative ways to do that, including restitution. We have given works back to Nigeria, Benin Works. We restituted some objects recently. Other museums have done that. We've just made a major agreement with the Greek government around Cycladic art that will be owned by the Greek government but on display at the Met on loan from them as a way of honoring who should hold title, which is not the same thing as who should have it on the wall. And if you begin to separate those issues out, we can imagine a future where there's shared ownership agreements, there are partnerships with around the world. I think that's the future and it's the right direction. Do people ever say to you, let's say you have objects that belong to some country, just for an example, regardless if it's related to the Holocaust or whatever. You, 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 it's been determined legally that you need to return this stuff, and they don't have the proper facility to care for that. Is there ever a conversation where you sit there and say, well, when you guys are ready to take it, we'll give it to you? Like, you're not just going to stick it in a warehouse down by the seaside. Like, what, what happens then? That's a real issue. That happens. If there, there's a legitimate legal claim, then we have no choice. But what we might say to the country or to whoever it is, it's yours. We'll give it to you whenever you want. But we're happy to take care of it for you until you're ready. And it's yours, whatever you say. But at least it's going to be safe here at the Met. Right. If there is not a legal issue, but it's more about our decision that we think these people should have it, then the odds are we would say we want to figure out the right way for you to get this. But we're happy to help figure out how do you make sure this object is going to be safe and secure. And usually that's a collegial discussion because they want that too. And it might mean helping them build a facility or creating better security or whatever. Both of those things happen. Where do you like to go and spend a day at a museum? What's one that never lets you down? Well, I would say it's it's a, perhaps a surprising answer, the Louvre. And the reason I say that is I've been going there all my life, ever since I became an art person when I was in college. It's an institution that's full of treasures. Everywhere you go, there's something in the room that's the best example of its kind in the world. And it's so vast. It's, it's the same size as the Met, but I know the Met better. Uh, that I always love to visit. And it, by the way, it's in Paris, which is also nice. So I, I love many different museums, but I get to the Louvre several times a year. Several times a year. Now, I'm told it's been made public you're stepping down. Yes, the end of the summer. The I end of the summer. eight years of service, and I'm declaring victory and moving on. It's been a great experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. My thanks to the author and outgoing president and CEO of The Met, Daniel Weiss. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Daniel Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.